Ephesians is an interesting book. First three chapters, we just soar with what we about God. The last three chapters, Paul takes all that, puts it together and says, all right, this is how you live it out. It's one thing to know the truth. It's what do you do with the truth? And because it's been such a long series and we've gone verse by verse, it's been a long time since we talked about what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you have to remember that passage and that portion of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit to understand a difficult passage like Pastor Corey just read to you. You also, especially if you haven't been with us, you have to understand for the last few weeks we've been looking at what it means to submit, to submit to one another out of reverence for God. We've talked about submission in marriage. We've talked about submission of children to their parents and how God honors them and gives them a long life and things will go well with them. And now we come to this passage of scripture and this will be a little more lengthy introduction than what you're accustomed to and I won't necessarily make the sermon longer but to understand it you have to kind of get the background because and I deliberately chose this word and I hope it's not offensive I hope you just really understand the context because there are two kinds of enemies of the scripture one is the enemy that will take a scripture like this and say well slavery is the will of God you know slavery is condoned by God it's ordained by God but from the beginning it wasn't so as a matter of fact from my part of the country one of the most respected theologians in the Civil War was R.L. Dabney he was a Presbyterian theologian he wrote some wonderful books great treatises but he believed that the Bible condoned slavery we don't I didn't and there were many in the South that didn't some of you have been moved and blessed. As a matter of fact, it's still a very popular selling book written by a Civil War chaplain. He was a Confederate chaplain. He's buried in Washington, Georgia. His name is E.M. Bounds. How many of you have heard of that name before? Can I see your hand? Yeah. He wrote the book Power in Prayer, Prevailing in Prayer. And you take that, and if you don't understand the context of all the Scripture and what Paul meant by being filled with the Holy Spirit, then you can approach the Bible and say, see, this doesn't apply to us. I mean, Jesus may have said some really good things. Jesus may have said some really nice things. But this is why we can't accept the Bible, because the human spirit has become more enlightened and we've become more progressive. And though there are some good things in the Bible, the Bible condones slavery. And so for those who try to condone something that the Bible clearly doesn't condone, because Paul will say, if you have the opportunity to get free, get free. He'll also write to a slave owner and he'll say, listen, your slave is your brother in Christ. You should release him. If nothing else, out of your debt of love to me, you should release him. There's a little book in the Bible called Philemon about that. So it's a, you can go ahead and put that verse of scripture up. I'm just going to keep going here with this introduction. So, approach says it's condoned. One approach says we can't accept the Bible. And this is the word I chose. Both of those are idiotic approaches. It fails to take into consideration the whole revelation of the Scripture. When the book of Ephesians talks about the Spirit-filled life, it's talking about our hearts. The heart is always affected by the Holy Spirit. In our culture, in American culture, we tend to pit heart and head against one another. When 
those of you that I've done your premarital counseling. You know, I'll tell you, in this, in this counseling, these 12 weeks of counseling we're going to do, we're going to talk, and sometimes you've got to think with your head, and sometimes you've got to think with your heart. Because sometimes your heart may tell you to do something, you really want to do it, you, it's love, it's, it's affection, but your head tells you it's the wrong thing to do, and you know it's the wrong thing to do, so you have this battle of head and heart. Or maybe your head is telling you to do something, and yet your heart is saying, be compassionate. And we pit them against each other, but that's not how the Bible speaks of your heart. When the Bible, and, 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 and try to hang on with me here, and I'll keep asking you to because I know it's hard sometimes. When the Bible speaks of your heart, it's speaking of your emotions, it's speaking of your volition or your will. When the Bible speaks of your heart, it's speaking of your spirituality. And so when the Bible tells us that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing and singing hymns and praises with a joyful heart, with a changed heart. God is talking about the very center of our lives. He's talking about not head and heart pitted against each other, but a change in our will. We choose to do the will of God. A change in our affections. We choose to love God and love one another. A change we, we will to do this. Whether or not we feel like doing it, we will to do this. And you see, we have a whole doctrine called sanctification. You've probably heard of that doctrine. That doctrine has to do with your will. You know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, not because you cry when you sing a worship song. You know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, not because you feel like, yes, when you sing a song of victory. But you know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit when you choose to do the will of God. And you're progressively being transformed by the power of God. Some of you, and from our conversations, before you began to attend Woodland Church, you were very religious. You grew up in church. You believed what the Bible said about God. You believed about living the Ten Commandments. But suddenly, when you began to attend Woodland, something happened to you and you realized you'd never asked Christ to forgive you of your sins. You had never put your trust in God. And suddenly, when you did that, it wasn't an intellectual exercise because even the devils believe, the Bible says. Suddenly, your heart was transformed. Your emotions were transformed. You've wept, you've laughed, you've cried. Some of you are like some pastors that I interviewed during a great revival that happened in the United States about 20 years ago. It was called the Brownsville Revival. I was amazed at the pastors, pastors of local congregations, coming out of that revival testifying they had never been saved. They had never been born again. I interviewed some, one of those was a Navy chaplain. And I said, how could you be a chaplain and how could you be a pastor and, and not have been born again? And he, I will never forget, he looked at me and says, I never heard. I never heard the Word of God. I never heard. I needed to re repent of my sins. I believed and I'd been in church all my life, but suddenly God convicted me and showed me how awful my sin was. Suddenly God convicted me through the Word and showed me how terrible my sin was. And I fell to my knees and repented and he looked at me though he was a decorated chaplain and the pastor of a large church a prestigious congregation he said I would have died and gone to hell had it not been 
for a revival service at a church that somebody persuaded me to go to. One happened to be a presbyter on the presbytery that I was serving on. And I was blown away by these stories. And I realized, especially as someone who believes deeply in the spirit-filled life, there's more to this than what most of us have experienced. And that's what makes Ephesians such a powerful book. So in light of a spirit-filled life, in light of a transformed heart, in light of what I've just shared with you about our wills, then let's talk for a moment. How do we take in this 21st century culture where people look for all kinds of reasons to criticize or not believe the Bible and say, how do we apply something like this where it says, master or slaves, obey your masters? Well, I think that's pretty easy. Most historians would agree that slavery was gotten rid of because of Christians, evangelical Christians in particular. But historians, historians don't work the way you and I work. Their minds think differently. A historian doesn't go, why are things the way they are? A historian goes back and says, why did things change? Why did they change? Because for all of recorded human history, there's been slavery. It was just natural to assume that if you conquered somebody, they became your slaves. It was just natural to assume that if you went to war and they conquered you, you became their slaves. You remember the famous story of David and Goliath, two champions coming out to fight each other. If your, if your champion defeats me, Goliath said, we will be your slaves. If I defeat you, you will be our slaves. That, that was recorded history. And there are major religions today, not Christianity, but major religions today, world religions, still that endorse slavery. There are people fighting for that. They're making slaves today. There are more slaves in the world today than they've ever been before. And so historians say, what changed? Well, it changed with Christianity. Because in the beginning, it was not so. God created people not to be slaves of one another, but to have fellowship with Him. And there was a place called Eden. There was a garden. And God created something, gave it to them, and work wasn't a curse, work was a blessing. Now let me tell you a very sexist myth to kind of help you process this. And, and I hope this is not boring you, but I, because I trust you that when people talk to you, you're going to be able to explain this to them. It's a very sexist Greek myth. You've heard of it. How many have heard of Pandora's box? That's the Greek mythologist's way of saying, you know what? The reason there's trouble in the world is because of women. In the Bible, the reason there's trouble in the world is because men and women together sinned against God. So, Zeus gives to Pandora this box that says, don't open it. Well, Pandora just can't resist. She opens it and all of a sudden all these troubles and curses flow out in the world. Evil spirits in the world and work comes out of that box. There was no work until Pandora opened that box. As a matter of fact, Aristotle believed that myth so much, he says, if you've got to work, if you have to work, because work was kind of despicable to a Greek. He says, if you've got to work, at least do something clean like politics. Really? Politics? Come on, Aristotle. 
politics? And this deal was such that people were forgetting who they were. Just like I fear people are forgetting who they are in this generation today because of a lack of biblical knowledge. You see, as Christians, we're not trying to be like the world. We're not trying to say, can I do this and can I do this and still be a Christian? We want to live right at the foot of the cross. We want to live right in the center of God's will. We want to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can you say amen to that? We want to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the, the historian says, how did we get to where we're at now? Paul writes this letter. He writes to Onesimus. He says, listen, love him. Love him. He's your brother. And suddenly, if you were a slave owner, things begin to change. This person wasn't property that you could dispose of. This person was your brother or your sister in Christ. What's my point? My point is, you don't change a culture with law. You don't change a culture with codes. Cultural change happens when hearts are changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how you change a culture. And that's why it's so important that we share the best news of all, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And He loves you, and He died so that your sins could be forgiven. And I hope that helps you, and I know that was lengthy, but you need that before I can break this down for you. So if you would, stand with me, and let's pray. Becky, thank you so much, sweetheart, for just playing patiently behind me there. I love you, Jesus. I love to preach your word because it's truth, it's life. God, we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I pray today in Jesus' name, you will help me to say what you're saying, to live like you're living, Lord, and to share your word with your people. And then send us from this place in sanctifying power, heart-transforming power, to share the love of Jesus Christ with our friends and family. God, thank you for this baptismal service today. To listen to these testimonies, see change, and to see what one person's testimony can do. I give you all the all the glory for that. And may we never forget it, for it's in Jesus' name I ask. And everybody said, Amen, Amen. I bless you. You may be seated. And uh, I hear my sound going in and out. Do I need to get a, a handheld microphone? Okay, just keep me on clue. Well, first of all, the first principle that I take that we can apply to this from our 21st century living today with that background in his mind is number one, Respect the person that I work for. Respect the people that I work for. You see, if I take this and I go, well, we're not slaves, and you and I are, are not in bondage or indentured servants to somebody, but we're working for someone, then we need to respect the people that we work for. The Bible says in verse 5 of, of Ephesians chapter 6, slaves, obey your earthly masters, read it with me, with deep respect and fear. And that's not fear like you're going to be beaten. That's the fear like the fear of the Lord. 
And when I read this, the first thing that comes to my mind in all kinds of movies that I've watched about slavery is I have slave stamps in my office that I bought from the time I lived in Africa. And I've tried to put myself in, in the shoes of those that I have preached with and ate dinner with and been in their homes in Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania and Ethiopia. And I've tried to think like they've thought because we've discussed these things. One was, a, was a, a PhD in theology trained at, at uh, the University of Oxford in Great Britain. And Zeph and I became dear friends and preached for him numbers of times. And we've talked about these issues of slavery and the relationships and colonialism. And sometimes a slave would not have a master that was worthy of respect. And I dare say that some of you might work for some people that are not worthy of respect. The Bible's not saying you respect their lifestyle. The Bible's not even saying that you respect what they stand for, but you respect the position that they hold. You see, what it means to respect someone is that their name is safe in your mouth, just like we say here at Woodland, that our names must be safe in the mouth of one another. You don't go behind their back and gossip. You don't go behind their back and criticize and complain because gossip at work or in any office or on the line, I promise you, is guaranteed to drain you of joy. And if you're a boss, if you're a wise boss, you don't go around trying to find out all the gossip and trying to get people listening in. I remember one employer telling me I was with him and we were walking around and he made a very proud statement. He says, I got people who they don't know it, but they're, they're spying on other people for me in this plant. That's a miserable way to live. You don't try to get people spying for you. You just live a lifestyle that's worthy of respect. But if you respect your boss and if you do what you're told and you do it with excellence, when you, have, when you do that, you maximize their leadership. You maximize their effectiveness. Now, I, I have been in a lot of plants and I've been up here. I was in a plant this week and I've been in a lot of offices and I've heard people tell me, well, I don't want them to be more effective. I want them fired. I want them out of here. And if you're working against your boss, your boss is going to be working against you. And so you respect them and you magnify, you maximize their effectiveness. But the second thing that happens is suddenly your anxiety begins to go down. There was a man that was a part of this congregation. He's no longer part of this congregation. Because he went in and was gossiping about his boss and tried to organize something against his boss and he came to me real proudly and told me about it and I said, you're sinning. You need to go to your boss and apologize to your boss for what you've done. That's not the way of the Christian. And I read this to him and he says, you know, I'm not a slave of anybody and kind of stormed out. Well, he ended up getting fired. He lost his job and he went a long time without his job. His kids got bitter. Let me tell you something. When you respect people and their names are safe in your mouth, you not only maximize their, their effectiveness, but minimize your anxiety because you're not worried about being found out. If we speak the truth, we don't worry about having to have a good memory. And so that's a very important principle that I take out of this passage. Now, it doesn't mean there's going to be, not going to be tension. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have to still deal with a disrespectful lifestyle. I worked for a man one time that took every opportunity he could. I was working in mental health. He took every opportunity he could to mock my faith, mock my religion. We'd get different people in, and he'd try to set me up in counseling sessions, setting snares for me, and then would laugh about it. It doesn't mean that you reduce the tension, but it does mean that you don't live with anxiety because you know you're doing everything right. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? 
And beyond that, you have this peace with God. You have this peace with God that you haven't tried to harm, hurt your boss, whether they're respectful or not. And if you happen to work with someone that is a good boss or a good manager or a good supervisor or a good foreman, you need to give God thanksgiving every day that you work for somebody that cares about your welfare as well. Can you say amen to that? The second principle I take out of this is work with a sincere heart. Work with a sincere heart. I mean, work at your work. Go about it with sincerity in your life. The Bible says in five, the second half of uh, verse 5, it says, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Read that with me. Serve them sincerely. No, let's emphasize that. Let's start again. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Now, let's come back and let's emphasize those last two words, serve Christ. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. You gotta be kidding me. You want me to serve them just as sincerely as I would serve Jesus? This morning, we ask a blessing. We gave sacrificially of our tithes. We gave sacrificially of our finances. Some of you this week, you gave sacrificially of your time. There was a great ladies event here on Friday night, and it was beautiful. I came in from the retreat and came back and was able to greet the ladies, and I was surprised at all the high school students back there helping, men back there helping and serving, ladies who worked hard, people who were down here to midnight cleaning up afterwards, but they did it with a sincere heart. And afterwards, there were so many guests that, that were coming through. They were hugging my neck. I hadn't done one thing, but they were hugging my neck and thanking me for all the sacrifices you had made. That felt pretty good. Did you know that? I hadn't done one thing, and they were coming up and saying, oh, thank you, thank you, and I got all these wonderful hugs that you deserved, but it's because you serve Christ sincerely, and that's how God calls us. You can see sincerity in a person's body language, can't you? Those of you that got children, when you ask your son to mow the lawn or your daughter to help you with the dishes, you can see their sincerity. You know, you, you look for it and say, yes, dad, and you go out and you mow that lawn. And say, oh, my dad's great. He asked me to mow. He's teaching me character. Never happens. But you know, you and I, we're adults. We're grown. We're maturing in Christ. We know how to approach our work sincerely like that. One of my favorite movies, and I've recommended it over the years to you, is The Chariots of Fire. It's about the story of Eric Liddell, and Eric, who was a, became an Olympic gold medalist and a runner, his wife, his, his sister was afraid that he was, because of his Olympic dreams, that he was not going to become a missionary to China. He did become a missionary to China. He died as a martyr in China, but he told his sister one time, because she was really trying to get him not to run and go ahead and be a missionary, he said to her, he says, listen, God made me fast. God made me love to run. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And sometimes when I run with two Motrins in my body, I go, God, I feel your pleasure. I feel your pleasure. You know, I'm trying to motivate myself, but Liddell was fast. He fell down in that race and was at the very end, and he got up and he didn't give up, and he ran and passed all the competition, and he won the gold medal. And here's what I want you to know. He said to his sister, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. And you see, when we work sincerely, we feel God's pleasure. Our boss may not be respectful. There may be tension at work. But when our eyes are focused upon Jesus Christ and Him along, and we're looking eyeball, eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, there's this joy and there's this sincerity because we're not serving.
serving as men pleasers, we're serving to please the Lord. Harold Abrahams, on the other hand, was running in the same race. And he would write in his journal, and we have his journal. He said, he said, I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit. I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. And he asked himself, when I do these things, and I'm doing it with all of my might, why don't I feel any pleasure in it? Today, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you this question. When you're at work, do you feel the pleasure of God? Are you working to please Jesus? Are you working just for a paycheck? Are you working just for money? Or have you discovered what it means to have a transformed heart and you're working because you want to bear a good name for Jesus Christ? If you believe that, let's say amen as well. If not, and we find ourselves working only for money, then we sell our souls, as Esau did, just for a pot of stew. And none of us want to sell our souls for that. We want to work for the glory of God. The third thing I take out of this is from verse 6. I work well without supervision. I work well without supervision. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. I work well without supervision. I worked for a wonderful company when I was in high school. When I would come home from college, they always gave me my job back. I worked for a company called Piggly Wiggly. Twee, 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 it's Piggly Wiggly for me. We affectionately called it the Hoggly Woggly. And I loved working for the company. I worked for a good boss. I worked for a boss that encouraged me in my pursuit and my call to ministry. The Achenbach family who owned the Piggly Wiggly grocery stores were Christians. And I just, I was very fortunate. Because I knew a little bit about farming and stuff like that, I, I was able to run produce for them. I was able to work in the meat department because I could count, you know. I was able to help up front and count and run cash registers and stock, whatever I could do to make money and to save up for college. And I will never forget some of the things I learned there, and I've saw that so many times. There would be people that I worked with that when the boss was around, they would work hard. And these were the days when you had these little holsters and you had these little stamper things. You know what I'm talking about? And you, you went across a can of Campbell's soup and stamped it as fast as you could, and, and you got it up there. We got paid by the hour, and, and so it was important to work well, and, but some guys would just, the boss would leave, they'd back off, and I'll never forget one guy telling me, say, Clanton, you need to quit working so fast. We'll make more money if we work slow. Another guy came to me one time and says, Clanton, if you don't stop trying to learn all these new things, they're going to work you to death. If you'll be like me, I only know how to do one thing around here, and that's all I'm going to do. So they never bother me to come in early and do something. We well, see, that's not working well without supervision because God's eye is always upon us. God's eye is always upon us. This week, I was asked about, did I know a good mechanic? And I threw out Vito's name. Last week, I was asked, did I know someone that could lay carpet and put down hardwood? I threw out Dean Toko's name. Because these people have worked for me. They work with enthusiasm. I got a call from somebody that's doing some construction work for Becky and I and George, and they called me this week, and I know them. I've known them for almost 40 years, and they said, Pastor, thank you so much for trusting us with this job. We promise you, you know we keep our word. We will do the best job possible for you, and I know they keep their word. It's why we went back to them, and they work well without supervision. They have keys to our home, and they can get in and out of our home. You see, when you work that way, 
things go well with you. And that's the reason the Bible says work well without supervision. Now, here's what's important. Let me illustrate this with a story you all know. How many have heard about Joseph in the Bible? You've heard about Joseph in the Bible. Remember, he worked well. It's because he worked well, he became the manager or the steward of all of Pharaoh's home. Pharaoh trusted him with everything. Pharaoh's wife lied about him, accused him of rape, which he didn't do, so he was thrown in jail. And you had to know that Potiphar believed because you had people like that killed. Instead, he spared his life, he went to jail. He was so trustworthy, the jailer turned the prison over to him. Can you imagine turning the prison over to the inmates today? Never happened. Well, he worked so well that one day he was called up by Pharaoh. He became second only to Pharaoh. This point is so important. Don't think you're getting by by doing as little as you can. When you do your best, you are going to be exalted by the Lord. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? The fourth point I take out of this is that my work is a reflection of God's will for me. My work is a reflection of God's will for me. Now, you know, we teach a lot around here. We have a whole class on it that we teach. And it's called SHAPE. And SHAPE is a, an acronym for spiritual gifts, our heart, our abilities, our personality, and our experiences. We'll go over that again if you've never heard it. Our spiritual gifts, our heart. Our heart is, you know, what makes us jump up and down inside, what we're passionate about. Our abilities, the natural things that God has given you that you can do well. Maybe you're a seamstress, or maybe you're an accountant, you're just good with numbers. Uh, God works in ability, personality, you know, we all have different personalities. That's the reason sometimes we clash with some people because of our personality differences. But then the experiences in our life. Some of you have had some very painful experiences. Maybe you had an absent father or mother. Maybe you don't know who your father or mother was. Some of you, maybe you, you, you made some poor decisions and you ended up, you know, in drugs or you ended up in prison. And you need to know God loves you and God changed your life and, and He's put your feet on a, on a path that is solid and you should never hang your head and shake about your path because Christ's blood has cleansed you of all of that and he's given you a fresh start in life. Isn't it good to know you can have a brand new beginning in Christ? I will never forget at a Jesus uh, rally that Becky and I were at in Florida when we were youth pastors. Wanda had lived this lifestyle that had led her far from Christ. She could never seem to get over the lifestyle that she had lived. And one night she's sitting behind Becky and I. We're sitting on, on blankets on the ground. We're listening to these Jesus bands play and suddenly Wanda began to sob and she began to go, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm new. There was this young girl singing on stage. Her name was Honey Tree. And if you've never, I'd say Google her and listen to some of her music, but she was singing a song, clean before my Lord. Do I stand and in me not one blemish does he find? And suddenly the truth of that became upon Wanda's life. And she is still a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, a great mother, a professional that God has prospered and done well. You see, God changes our life, and when He changes us, our work becomes a reflection of God's will for our lives, but He uses our bad experiences as well as our good experiences. God doesn't waste your pain. God doesn't waste your joy. God doesn't waste your success, and God doesn't waste your failure. But spiritual gifts, coming all the way back to the letter S, spiritual gifts are something God gives us when we are born again. 
And that's those gifts that the Bible refers to. And I don't think there's an exhaustive list, but there are gifts of mercy. There are gifts of leadership. There are gifts of being able to speak well. There are gifts of discernment. There, there are these supernatural gifts. And you know, I didn't have these before I was born again and before God changed my life. Now, having said that, let me kind of walk you through how your work is a reflection of God's will for you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Now, I can't go back to slavery because we'll, that'll take another whole time, long time to deal with. But I will say Paul was speaking to slaves. And he's telling them, where you're at right now, if you can get your freedom, as I read to you earlier, he will be challenging this. But he says, right now, do the will of God. How I work reflects the will of God being worked out in my life. That's that doctrine of sanctification. I didn't want to work in mental health for the rest of my life. I found out in a big hurry what I'm not called to do. Okay? Anybody ever found that out, what you're not called to do? I mean, I approached it with a pure heart. I approached it excited. But man, there were some times that I was scared beyond belief. I was in a cell where we had put a, I had to put a patient into a cell. She weighed every bit of 98 pounds. And I watched a big old retired Vietnam paratrooper come in and try to muscle her down. And she picked him up and pitched him across the room. He hit the tile wall, slid down the floor, knocked out. And I'm alone in there with her. And I am every bit of 98 pounds at that time. And I'm going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all I knew how to say. I don't care who heard me, but it was Jesus, Jesus. Because here come a woman that had just kicked his, you know what, really good. And she's coming at me. And when I said, Jesus, Jesus, she fell to the floor weeping and crying. By that time, some nurses got around there and an elderly nurse named Mrs. Smith began to rub her back and just pray with me over her. She began to weep and God touched her in that cell. And I saw thing after thing after that and I came home one night and I told my young bride, I says, I know what I'm not called to be right now, okay? But I did it well. I did it well. I, I worked at it with all my heart. And those times in those, that mental health clinic, I wasn't a patient. I did work there. Those times in that mental health clinic, they have helped me more as a pastor than I could ever tell you. Because here's what I learned. It is God's will for me to grow even if I'm in a difficult situation. Trouble has a way of driving me to the cross. Trouble can sometimes be the best gift I've had because trouble causes me to recognize I can't do this on my own power. I need the power of God. And if you believe that, let's give the Lord a hand of praise this morning. But here's what else I've learned since that time. As long as I live, there's going to be trouble. And as long as I pastor, there's going to be conflicts to deal with. And as long as I pastor, there's going to be trouble to deal with. You see, God wants me to grow and not give up. Never, 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 as Winston Churchill said, give up. If you can stand the pulling, God's going to pull you through. Look at your neighbor and say, God's going to pull you through this morning. Would you do that? This week, a friend of mine called me from down south and he and his wife are, are just have the wonderful gift of hospitality and they hosted 
the leaders of one of the largest churches in the United States in their home this week. So while they were having dinner in their home, he called me and he says, Pastor, I think you need to hear this story. And he asked this particular pastor who's well-known, well-published. He goes, have you ever heard of this ministry? And he goes, yeah, I've heard of it, but I just got to be honest with you, I've never heard anything good about it. And my very close dear friend that I spent some time with on my sabbatical this summer, he looks at him, he calls him by name, and pardon my French, he says, well, listen, I've heard a lot of crap about you too, but I don't listen to it because I tell people they don't know you like I know you. And this pastor looked at me and says, wow, that's great. And to be honest with you, I don't know anything about this man. I don't know anything about this ministry. But if you'll give me something, I'll take a look at it. You see, if we're not careful, we'll be quick to believe every bit of negativity and every bit of gossip that comes our way. And we will never grow. That's why our names must be kept safe in the mouth of one another. Can you say amen to that? Which leads me to the second point is God's will for me then to serve those around me. And usually when the going gets tough or when there's criticism or when there's negativity, we start focusing on ourselves and we forget about the people we're working with. We forget about the people we're serving. And when we start focusing upon how this is going to affect me, how this is going to affect my life or my dreams, my ambitions, my career goals, then suddenly our job loses its joy. If you will keep Christ first in your life, God says, if you humble yourself before me, I will exalt you in due time. Can you say amen? And how do we humble ourselves? We humble ourselves by obeying God with all of our heart. That doesn't mean just tears. That doesn't mean just intellect. But that means doing the will of God from our hearts. It's obeying the Lord. And if you really want a clear picture of it, to humble ourselves is to become like Jesus. Though he was God, he did not come to be served, but he came and he made himself the servant of all. You see the beauty of the word of God in the life of Jesus because he not only shows us what God is like, he shows us his amazing love for one another by healing the sick and feeding the hungry, caring for for the oppressed, touching the untouchable, welcoming the children, loving the unlovable. He loves his enemies as well as his friends, and he stretches out his arms on Calvary, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know what they're doing. The grave cannot hold a person down like that. The power of Christ will resurrect you in every circumstance. Can we give him one more hand of praise this morning? <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, I got to tell you what, I'm glad I came to church this morning. <laughs> The fifth thing I take out of this is God is my boss. God is my boss. I don't allow people to call me boss. This morning I walked into church and two men says, here comes the boss. And I go, nope, here comes the shepherd. But I said, what I want you to remember is one day that sky is going to split. I pointed to the wrong side. I pointed to the west because I'm the most directionally challenged man there is. But I said, one day that sky is going to split. And Jesus is going to come back, and that's what we want to see, is say, here comes Jesus. Can you say amen? That's our boss. That's who we're going to stand before. Work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So look at your motives if you go to work. You'll never get through a job if you come just trying to please your boss so Paul is saying to these slaves, again, none of us have life like they lived it. 
He's saying to these slaves, you don't have to say it out loud, but whether you have a good master or whether you have a poor master, it will change your perspective if you remember, my master is heaven in heaven, and one day I'm going to stand before him for eternity. And today I choose to look him in the eye and say, I'm working for you, Lord. I'm not working for the master. I'm not working for the boss man. I'm not working for the foreman. I'm not working for anybody but for Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we will serve one another well. And then sixthly this morning, God will reward me. And in the context of Ephesians, it's important to remember, he's not just talking about eternity. And again, it's been a long series. He's not talking about just the context of eternity. He's talking about today. Remember what he said to our children? If you obey your parents, if you honor your parents, things will go well for you and you'll live a long life upon this earth. Things will go well for you. God will open up the windows of heaven upon you today. I hope that you understand how much God loves you. This passage isn't so much about slavery as it is the will of God. Remember, the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. This week I was out on the line at one of the plants as we were walking through the plant, there were several things that shocked me. Number one, do you know Ford is building a $200,000 pickup truck? 200, I mean, who pays that much money for a pickup truck? Somebody does, because there were four of them coming down the line. 200, I asked, the guy asked me, he says, do you know how much this truck's worth? I go, 60, $70,000? He says, that's a down payment. 200, now it's going to China. <clears throat> so maybe it's tariffs, I don't know. You'll get it later. <laughs> but they told me a story about building a Mustang. And of course, if you say Mustang, my ears perk up. And I, we're talking about the Mustang. He says, you know, we were building a Ford Mustang for Edsel Ford Jr. And all down the line, the bosses were saying, slow it down, slow it down. Edsel Ford Jr. is here. Take your time. And they talked about how slow and how long it took to build Edsel Ford. And Edsel Ford walked through the line while his Mustang was being built. He said, occasionally we get very important people out there. I wasn't one of them because they didn't slow nothing down while I was there. <laughs> we get very important people out here and we slow the line down. Because they're investors or they're people who will do something that Ford wants. And so they slow the line down. You see, it's important to remember who you're working for. If you're working for Ford or GM or Chrysler, if you're working for an investment bank or whatever, you're never going to know the joy of life. If you're just waiting on a check to come, you'll never know. But can I tell you the greatest reward is when you know your children are ready to meet Jesus. When you know your husband dies, he's going to stand before the Lord. When you know your wife dies and they're in faith. When you know that your father has died and you're going to be reunited. 
And the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. And in the context of this message, I'd like to give honor to a great man who died this week, President George Herbert Walker Bush. A man whose diary I read, and I've held it up before you and recommended you read it, and who said that the three most important things in life are faith, family, and friends. I don't know if you saw that cartoon. You know, he was shot down as a pilot. And in his journal, he tells about living out here, writing about how he and Barbara lived out here in Gross Hill when he trained as a pilot and then went to serve our country in the Pacific Theater and was shot down over the Pacific Ocean to be rescued a couple of days later by a submarine. And he talks about his marriage to Barbara, talks about his service to our country and always talking about others. And it's interesting reading his journal. And I told you, he never talks about himself. He talks about his country, the people he served, the people he worked for. Talked about the pain of Robin's death when she died as a little girl. His granddaughter reflects upon how her last conversation with her dad, granddad was that he told her, he says, I'm looking forward to be reunited with Barbara and being reunited with Robin and seeing them when I get to heaven. He talked freely about his faith. I remember when Billy Graham, Becky and I were reminiscing on this last night, when Billy Graham sat in the White House with them and they prayed together for the nation on the television and there was George Herbert Walker, this New England patrician that was taught never to show his faith, but at a crucial moment for our country was showing his faith and those tears in his eyes. I was moved by that. And when I saw that cartoon published in the Mississippi Clarion Ledger yesterday of a little fight, and this is not how it will be, but a little fighter jet part to the gates of glory and there was Robin and Barbara waiting upon George as he got out of that plane and ran to them I want you to know the greatest gift you can give somebody in the world is the gift of their confidence that you gave your life to Jesus you've been born again your faith wasn't a head faith your face was an emotional faith but your heart was changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you don't have to leave here like you came you don't have to leave here bound you don't have to leave here oppressed. You don't have to leave here tormented. You don't have to leave here lame. You don't have to leave here in shame. You can leave here as a champion in Jesus Christ because God has the power to make a brand new person out of your life. Hallelujah. <laughs> so finally, <coughs> bosses, managers, supervisors, remember the golden rule. Remember the golden rule. <coughs> when I moved here 20 years ago, man in the church up in our old sound room gave me a book by Studs Terkel called Working. In that book, in the very beginning, he writes this, this book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fist fights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It's above all or beneath all about daily humiliations. I know from having visited many of your workplaces, I know from having had the privilege, I couldn't talk about it for several years leading a Bible study and one of the plants, I know about these things. I've seen them. But I'm telling you, it doesn't have to be that way with you. God can cause you to rise above this and make you more than a conqueror. 
Steve Taylor, whose articles and books I've enjoyed, one thing is for sure, he says, if you spend nearly all your waking hours working, then it doesn't matter whether you're a millionaire businessman or a financial analyst. You're not really so different from a factory worker in a 19th century industrial town, an economic object whose life only has value in terms of the labor you produce. The only difference is you have the freedom to change and to make your life more meaningful and fulfilling. And ma'am, sir, you have the ability to make the people that you manage or you supervise or you employ, you have the ability to make their lives more meaningful and to build a better workplace. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In other words, love them like Christ loved them. I know that's difficult for us to understand, but let's transpose it to our century. Employers, supervisors, treat those you're responsible for in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. Do you know how radical that was to tell a slave owner, you are no different than your slave. And that's the reason the New Testament says in the body of Christ, there is no slave, no free. There is no Jew, no Gentile. We are all the same in the eyes of God. Can you say amen? Amen. So if you're a supervisor, real quickly, let me give you just several things that I think will help you grow. And then I want you to watch a short video about some Christians and their company. Develop people skills. You can develop that. Don't say I'm poor with people. You can learn how to work with people. You can learn how to motivate people. Treat people with loving kindness. Treat them the way God has treated you. Don't worry about being taken advantage of. If you're taken advantage of, that's your own fault. You can stop that. When people take advantage of you, the Bible's real clear about how to deal with that. If you need help with that, I'll talk to you about it. Grow as a leader. Your leadership level can grow. If you're a two, you can become a four. If you're a four, you can become a six. If you're a six, you can become an eight. None of us are born as leaders. We have to grow as leaders. Don't buy into the myth of born leaders. Sometimes a crisis is what makes a leader. Sometimes it's trouble that makes a leader. Sometimes God puts you in a place and you say, why am I here? It's for that purpose because you have latent skills and abilities that God can use to make something good happen. So grow as a leader, but don't use intimidation or fear to motivate. In this generation, there's not only a lot of millennials who need to learn how to work, but there's a lot of people who did not have the advantages of a home like you provided for your children, or maybe a good home that you came from, or maybe even the advantages of knowing about faith. And some of them have been addicted to drugs. Some of them grew up with their only family being a gangs. And there are people out there that need a chance that we can serve. I want you to watch this real brief video. It's about four minutes long, and then I'll come back and close the service.
Being in the electrical trade, you have four years to be in the field of on-the-job training to become a journeyman electrician. And with that, we support a four-year apprenticeship program. We're always hiring people to come into our program, and we like to bring people in that are completely green, don't know the trade, so we can train them in our process. With that, when we're starting to donate, spend time with different charities, we realized that they had some candidates that were coming out of their program looking for jobs. And so that's where we decided, let's test this out. And uh, we started this pre-apprenticeship program. So the guys come to us from some of the valued programs. Not only do they learn everything, they're kind of putting their lives in the too. They learn their tools. They learn what, they, what it takes to go out on the job site. And then when we send them out, they're great. guys just an opportunity that you, you care for and you, you, you say guys I got you 40 hours I got you health insurance and um, they never had that opportunity before so it's, it's just rewarding. <laughs> Life has its challenges and things kind of change and uh, ended up uh, getting a felony and uh, it's kind of hard getting a job as a felon. As an addict um, it's hard to, to get back into society and reintegrate to get with a good company it's tough road. I put my head quite a few times, uh, got some drug charges, uh, some DUIs, and um, honestly I don't think that I'd, I'd be here with such a uh, great future ahead of me. I just bought a house literally a month ago. Wow. Um, it's paid off my vehicle. Um, you know, things are, things are looking very positive. They're ready to make a change in their life. You see that switch, like, hey, I've made some bad decisions in the past, but this company believes in me, and they're giving me a future, and they're investing in me. I'm glad people have hired me before. Um, it's kind of this, you see it click. We've got 300 employees right now, and we equate that out, and there's you know, 600 people that we're, we're affecting, and we're affecting families. You know, God gives you different giftings, and if you have that business gifting and you can excel in the business, you can capture a big audience. Being in that position where you can have an area of influence um, affect people positively is powerful. For us, it's kind of evolved over time and figuring out what is our culture going to be, where are we going to be. You know, we want people to do well here. We want them to retire well. Um, we want them to feel like they're a part of something bigger. And so setting that vision, what are we doing in the next five years? What's our role or responsibility in the community? How are we serving? How are we giving back? We're all blessed with all these talents, you know? How do you do something bigger than build a building? I view that the workplace, everybody spends time there, right? So many hours a week. And so how can we make a difference by um, being consistent and showing people just in your actions that you care and can be present with your time? Because um, I think when you build relationships, and that's when people trust you, and you can talk a little bit more about all the connections that we have, um, focusing on giving back and serving and connecting with community groups and charities, it takes it to this other level. So we're affecting families, we're affecting community groups, and it starts to build on each other. It's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When I watched that, there were three things that came to mind that I'd like to close with real quickly. The early church was made up of slaves, prisoners, and very well-to-do people. 
Paul says not many of you were rich, not many of you were very well educated. So it's only natural that Paul would deal with this dynamic, and he'd also deal with it in the book of Colossians, he would deal with it in Romans. It's only natural that Paul would tackle this issue on. Remember how the historian thinks. What changed human history? Second thing that comes to mind was a fascinating passage in the Old Testament to me. That if a slave was serving a master and he had the chance to be free, but because the master had been so good to him and he had learned from that master, and he would say to him, Master, I love you. And I want to stay with you. I want to continue to serve you. Two things that said. Number one, he must have been a good servant. Because the master wouldn't have kept somebody that would have been a drag. The second thing was, that master must have been a really good master. Because the slave was to take his right ear, place it against the door of the house and they would take an awl and drive it through his ear and then put one earring in his ear and it meant he was a love slave that's what it said my master has been so good to me and very interestingly that's the exact phrase that Paul would use to describe himself educated intellectual Evidently from a well-to-do home because of his association with Gamaliel. But Paul described himself, thirdly and finally, as a love slave of Jesus Christ. God has been so good to you and me. How could we help but not say, I want to be your slave for life. I want to live in your house. I want to serve you. And so Paul, even though he was a son of God and you're a son of God or a daughter of God, he would describe himself as the love slave of Jesus Christ. You see, the bottom line of all of this is remember that Jesus is Lord. Would you bow your heads and let me pray with you this morning? I've tried to give you a, a healthy introduction so you could understand this unique passage. I believe I've given you some great applicational principles to go from this. But if you just treat this as principles without getting to the heart of the issue, that Jesus is Lord, then you walk out of here without being changed or transformed. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe you've been like those pastors, those church members that have testified, I went to church all my life. Maybe you were a pastor, but I'd never been born again. You'd never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life and transform you. You believe, but you've just never really committed your life to Jesus. Would you pray this prayer with me this morning? I won't embarrass you. I won't ask you to stand up. It's between you and God. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I believe this Advent season in Christ who came to save us from our sins. And I confess to you that I'm a sinner who needs saving. Sin is our moral failures, it's our moral wrong. 
I accept your forgiveness. And I ask you to come into my heart, the place of my affections and emotions, the place of my will. I want to be born again of the Spirit. I want to be a Spirit-filled Christian. Come into my heart and life today. I don't understand it all, but I understand enough to know, Jesus, I love you and I need you. So as much as I know how, I commit to serving you today. Every single head is bowed. Every eye is closed. No one looking around. Would you let me know if you prayed that prayer this morning? Just by slipping up your hand. Yes. 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 God bless you. Wow. Just slip it up. Maybe you haven't raised it, but you say, Pastor, I'm praying that prayer this morning. Now, every head is still bowed, but would you help me as a pastor? You say, Pastor, I've grown up in church, I believe, but today I really am. I'm committing my life to Jesus. I want my heart changed. Would you lift up your hand? Yes. I knew you were here. Thank you. God bless you. Yes. Yes, ma'am. You can put your hand down. Well, church, let's celebrate this. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise for what he's done in this place this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, I love you. And if you still love me, that was probably the mother of all sermons right there. I love you so much, and I hope this is a great start to your Christmas season. Pastor Rick, you need to come and share a few things. God bless you. I hope you'll greet me at the back door this morning.